In 2002, the veteran anti-apartheid campaigner Desmond Tutu, a black South African archbishop, wrote an article in the Guardian newspaper entitled Apartheid in the Holy Land. Describing himself as deeply distressed after a trip to Palestine and Israel that had reminded him so much of what happened to us black people in South Africa, the Archbishop affirmed that Israel will never get true security and safety through oppressing another people. Welcome to another edition of The Ordinary Elite with me, John McGovern, and my colleague and campaigning lawyer, Mike Daly. I thought, Mike, that passage from Archbishop Tutu was appropriate given today we are joined by another man of the cloth, Father Jim Lawler, who is a Catholic priest who serves a parish in Maryhill in Glasgow. So welcome to the show, Jim. Thanks very much. Good to be uh, here. Uh, Jim has been vocal in his condemnation of what is going on in Gaza, which at the point of recording this episode, and according to the Gaza Health Ministry, shows 29,782 dead and over 70,000 injured. Two-thirds of the dead are believed to be either women or children. And this, Mike, is before the threatened Israeli bombardment of Rafah, where it is thought 1.5 million Palestinians are sheltering. No, absolutely, John. Um, I, I mean, what's going on in Gaza is truly beyond belief and beyond the pale. I think we also need to bear in mind, you know, in terms of the Gaza, the Gaza Strip itself, there's, there's only 2.3 million Palestinians that live there. It's not that big, you know, uh, an area. You know, so as you had said, having more than 29,000 people uh, die in uh, in the Gaza Strip since this war began on the 7th of October last year um, is, is truly unbelievable. Um, I understand from some reports that two-thirds of people who have died are children. Uh, and women. Um, now, th this all start well, uh, things in terms of uh, Palestine uh, uh, and Gaza have been going on a very long time. But this particular war started, as I said, on the 7th of October, uh, when Hamas killed, I think, uh, 1,200 uh, people in, in Israel, um, mostly civilians, and they took, I think, 250 um, Israelis hostage. And, and the response that we then get from Israel is has been described as one of the deadliest, most destructive mil military campaigns in recent history. Um, and of course, Hamas, I think, came into power in 2007. And the most frightening thing uh, for me is that the, there seems to be no sight uh, in, in in this letting up, this, this uh, ending. And so what I want to ask you, Jim, um, what do you think has to happen as a matter of urgency here? Well, I think, first of all, you know, to hear you both quote those statistics again is just horrendous beyond belief. I saw in the media today that they say by the end of this week that it'll have passed 30,000 dead in, in just three, three and a half months. It's just beyond belief. Mm. And, and the majority, innocent children and women, it's utterly disproportionate that there's no question about that terrible uh, behavior of Hamas on the 7th of October but but this is just a completely disproportionate response to that and to be honest I, I think every day we're asking the congregation here to to offer a prayer that this will cease and a lady said to me the other day to get back to your question Mike um, 
what's the point? What's the point of praying? This is never going to end. It's utterly relentless. And and everybody, I think, I certainly feel, and I, I pick up from others, that there's such a feeling that, that this is unsolvable. Um, because it seems that on, on Netanyahu's side, that, there is, that he's re- refused any two-state solution. He's refusing other options. He just seems to be absolutely hell-bent on destroying Hamas. And as a byproduct of that, 30,000 people, including all those women and children, are just collateral. Um, it's inhuman, and, and I don't know where it's going to go or where it's going to end. Um, I, I'm really struck that, that John began by quoting Desmond Tutu. That that uh, speech and those comments were flagged up to me just this weekend, and, and I had never heard them before, to be honest. So it's a nice coincidence that, that John's begun with those. I, and I was struck at, at the power of what Tutu said, that, that having lived through that, horrendous situation in South Africa that, that mm-hmm. he's saying it's it's exactly the same, maybe even worse in, in Israel. And, you know, the, the, the international community worked so hard to to bring sense to South Africa. And, and we've seen that kind of transfer, you know, an incomplete transformation going on there. So why is the international community mm-hmm. no crying out for the end of the apartheid in, in, in Palestine and the Holy Land? It's just beggar's belief. It does beggar belief, Jim. Um, and, and and let's bear in mind that, you know, what happened in South Africa, uh, which was evil in terms of, you know, the, the system of apartheid, um, you had that spiritual leadership, you know, um, as John has quoted um, uh, uh, Desmond Tutu, uh, but you also had the political leadership, didn't you? Because think about it. I mean, what I remember uh, when... Um, Nelson Mandela was elected president in South Africa was his real incredible leadership for peace and reconciliation. Now, where we are here in uh, with the position in, in Gaza, I'm just thinking that's going to be something that's going to have to be thought about quite seriously down the line. But as you rightly say, Jim, what needs to happen right now is we need to stop this mass killing uh, of civilians. And of course, we've, we've had the um, recent debate in the House of Commons, which sadly turned into a real farce in terms of procedural disagreements over this, that and the other. But it seems to me that that at the end of the day, that motion in the House of Commons uh, was passed and agreed. Now, it's not binding, but it it was. And let's hope because there's going to I understand there's going to be a fresh debate that's going to take place in the House of Commons. Now, a lot of people have been quite critical about that whole process, but I think just coming back to your point, what can we do? What's the point? You know, people can pray. Um, Well, our elected MPs can speak with one one voice. That's what they need to do. They need to put aside all this nonsense about whose motion is it, whose amendment is it, who cares? If everybody can come to agreement and a consensus, on all political parties, Conservatives, SNP, Labour, and say we need to stop the killing, we need a ceasefire. I know that Keir Starmer's talking about sustainable ceasefires. Uh, of course, um, you can get into the, the the nuances of this, but I think ultimately it's surely what we need to do, in, certainly from the point of view of the UK, is to say let's have a consensus that we need to have an immediate ceasefire. Yeah, I, I mean... Thinking about how this is going to be resolved, I think the absolute clear first stage needs to be an immediate ceasefire. Let's just stop the slaughter 
as you say, Mike, and and have a breathing space where people yeah. can actually speak to each other instead of launching missiles. Um, but that that situation in, in Westminster last week I found was deeply shaming to think that, that the mother of parliaments, as they keep reminding us, just it, it was like a club. Yeah. You know, you know, people squabbling with each other over technicalities and over legal procedures. Um, but I, I think at one level, what we saw happening in Parliament last week illustrates for me what what a major part of the whole situation in in uh, Palestine and the Holy Land, because while the authorities and the global leaders and the parliamentarians there and here are are squabbling about the the intricacies of history and all, all the rest of it, the the legalities and the solutions. My my fundamental concern is that while all of that's going on at a kind of ideological level, every single day there are people being killed. Yeah. You know, so so that the the actual reality of what's happening on the ground is masked by all that nonsense in Westminster and, and all the other kind of squabbling at the kind of global or official level, you know, international bodies and, and the, the relationship between particular nations. And yet on the ground, that's my fundamental concern, the humanitarian dimension. And we need a ceasefire to, to remove that destructive element and then try to think what might be the constructive solution to the whole thing. I think that's I think that's a good uh, strategy, Jim. I, I, I struggle with the uh, argument that, that uh, you know, pe people will say when you call for a humanitarian ceasefire or any form of ceasefire, stop the killing now, just please stop it now. Mm -hmm. And and anyone, there are arguments against that, or questions against that, such as, you know, what should happen to the hostages uh, in the event of a ceasefire? Uh, and you'll see that type of question posed frequently uh, in, in, in this debate that it's almost as being, being presented as an obstacle to a ceasefire that until the, you know, the hostages uh, are released, basically, or their safety is guaranteed, there cannot be a ceasefire. And that indeed, I think, was more or less the political consensus, certainly at uh, uh, Westminster level uh, between the UK parties uh, until recently, I think the tide might be turning. And that's a position I just cannot understand. I can't. I can't understand it. I can't understand why that issue over over two or three hundred hostages uh, would prevent a ceasefire that is that, that that would stop killing you know thousands thousands of people uh, every month. I don't. I don't understand the logic in that. And uh, so if we, so 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 that being so. Uh, until until that kind of uh, argument is 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 removed, uh, then I, I'm kind of pessimistic about even getting a ceasefire. I read today that possibly there's a suggestion when Ramadan comes. I think it's in early March this year. Uh, then that might be a, a platform to 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 allow a ceasefire. But I find it utterly. Depressing that the, the political powers that be in, in the United Kingdom cannot just basically morally say this killing has to stop and 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 call for it and fight for it. I, yeah. I find it depressing that that cannot be done. I, I suppose because of the way we operate here and you know in my, my context here in the parish, I'm fortunate that there's a kind of dialogue with the the people who pass through here, and I'm I'm 
constantly being reminded, and, and you're highlighting that again, John, that there is a, a kind of parallel humanitarian issue about those hostages. You know, clearly there are a couple of hundred families in a terrible situation, worrying about their loved ones, worrying if they're going to get out, worrying what kind of state they're in. But it goes back to that business of proportionality that, you know, a couple of hundred people being held hostage is terrible, surely. But to kill 30,000, um, and, and, and like you, I, I agree that the argument that a ceasefire cannot take place until they're all released is only going to delay it. It just it becomes an excuse to yeah. perpetuate the hostility. And I wonder if, if there were a ceasefire, would there be more opportunity, more more likelihood that those um, those hostages may be released where where a, a proper, you know, sustainable ceasefire put in place and put in place really quickly. The, the proportionality argument for me has always, uh, as a lawyer, uh, resonated. And when uh, the hostages were taken and the, effectively the bombing started back in October and, and up to Christmas, the the line being uh, spun by uh, certainly by Israel and its supporters and by again most of the, the by the Labour Party here and by the Conservative Party here was Israel got, has got a right to defend itself, so they would be killing thousands of people every week to defend themselves against uh, hostages. You know, two or three hundred hostages have been taken, and we know how awful that is. But any any lawyer will tell you that the concept of self-defence involves proportionality. It, it has to do that. And as soon as you uh, provide a disproportionate response, yeah. then that of itself becomes a crime. And, you know, the, the lack of any cohesive kind of understanding or, or, or willingness to tolerate that type of or entertain that type of thought process uh, I found to be really frustrating. I don't actually think there's many in the kind of political elite that are arguing that anymore. I don't think there's anyone out there, certainly in, in, in the UK political establishment, is still arguing that Israel is defending itself because I think everybody knows and sees it has gone way, way, way beyond that. Hmm. Oh, I, I would agree. I would see that. And, and I, I hope you both don't mind that since John's mentioned approaching this as a lawyer. I, I mean, I, I think part of how I'm approaching this as a, as a, as a Christian, as, a, as a, a Catholic priest, because I think what it's also highlighted are massive worrying fault lines here in the UK where one party is being slammed as being anti-Semitic and, and, and even just right up to today, another party is being slammed as being Islamophobic. And, and really at the core of this, there is a horrendous tension between Jewish and Muslim people that's at the absolute melting pot of, of the whole conflict. And, you know, I, I worked for a wee while in, in Berlin as part of the, the ecumenical, the interchurch um, chaplaincy team. And, and because I was the newest and the youngest in, I, I was given responsibility for the Muslim prisoners to make sure that they, you know, had their kind of, prayer rights on a Friday and so on. And I got really pally with some of those lads and learned an awful lot about the tradition. And I was also taught by by a Jewish lady that gave me a kind of insight into Judaism. So from a as a priest and as a, a kind of somebody who's been exposed in the best sense to Judaism and Islam, I have a, a great respect for both. But what, what we're seeing is a kind of ideological extremism on both sides. But, but I hope you don't mind if I, I also take the chance to say that 
Now, while we're talking about the, the silence among politicians or the, the at least the kind of fudginess about their condemnation, I have to say I'm quite exasperated about the silence of our Christian leaders as well, certainly in my own tradition in the, in the Catholic Church. Uh, our bishops here in Scotland have not yet issued a strong enough statement to condemn what's happening. And and when I spoke up a wee bit and on our own live streaming system, I was astonished to hear the number of folk who got in touch with me to say that they have never heard the Gaza situation being mentioned, prayed for, or or condemned in their churches, which I just think is a... Why do you think that is, Jim? Why do you think the Catholic hierarchy are, are holding back? Well, I, I, I don't know. I, I think maybe there's a, a fear among us, given you know the kind of mess that, that exists in the Catholic Church in so many ways and our, our own mishandling of our own internal stuff, that there is a fear in general about putting our heads above the parapet a wee bit. But, but it is a, it's a moral imperative to, you know, whenever you see what's going on there, to stand back and say nothing is to become complicit. And and I just I despair that we haven't been strong enough, whatever reasons the bishops have have not spoken out. My, my own bishop here in Glasgow made a comment and has supported, you know, the petition for a ceasefire and so on. But but they're they're public figures with a bit more clout who who could and ought, I think, be much more explicit about their in their condemnation and encouraging the, the, the Catholic community to be much, much more vocal in its support. And I mean, SCIAF has already launched a humanitarian campaign. They've launched a, a an online petition to Rishi Sunak for a ceasefire, but it's not been promoted as robustly as it could be. That's very interesting um, you say that, Jim, because, I mean, it does seem to me that we all have a responsibility, you know, as, as individual human beings uh, on this planet to to give a voice. And I think that voice is what we're talking about, is to to end the stalemate and to have uh, a humanitarian ceasefire immediately. We Thinking about that stalemate, Hamas say um, uh, they won't release all the uh, hostages that they have until Israel ends the war and withdraws from Gaza. Netanyahu you, you has said, um, I think he described that uh, as delusional, it'll never happen. <clears throat> I... Um, I think we need to be thinking also about the role of uh, the United States, uh, because clearly they've been vetoing any uh, Security Council at the UN. <clears throat> but I also think it's interesting to reflect on domestic pol politics in Israel itself. I, I was reading a very interesting set of <clears throat> articles from Israeli scholars uh, writing on the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And there's a, a fascinating insight um, from Professor Jonathan Reinhold, uh, and he uh, teaches at uh, the Bar-Ilan University in Israel. What he was saying was that going forward, the makeup of Israel's government will have a major influence on the policy towards Gaza. The current government is the most right-wing in Israel's history, and it has a clear majority. However, if elections were held tomorrow, it would likely lose one third of its seats and fall from, from power. And there's great public anger at the government with demonstrations, and there's a reasonable chance that elections will be held in the coming months. So I think it's interesting to look at the internal political position uh, in Israel, because it does seem to me that perhaps one of the reasons that this stalemate is, is, is here 
is because of uh, of Netanyahu and his his particular extreme uh, views in terms of politics. Um, and maybe there's some light at the end of the tunnel that if there are elections in Israel uh, and there's a more moderate, you know, central centralist um, government in power, then the, there may be hope. But I suppose the point is. Surely we can't be t talking about waiting months um, for for humanitarian ceasefire. Yeah, I I, I got a a lovely insight um, into just what you've described because after I spoke out kind of publicly at the tail end of the year, I, I got an email from a Jewish lady who kind of looked us up and and sent a message to say that every single night during Hanukkah, when, when Jewish families would light a candle every night for seven nights, they, they offered that lighting of the candle every night for the people of Gaza. So like, I had this image of a, a wee Jewish family doing that Jewish ritual, but offering it for these Palestinians. And that that kind of opened my eyes to the fact that, that, that there's clearly not a, a massive majority of Jewish people supporting this horror, mm -hmm. that, that, that there are Jewish people who are as horrified about it as, as the rest of us. Yeah. And it, it gives me a sense that maybe, as we've seen happening in our own political establishment, has, has Netanyahu kind of backed himself into such a corner that he doesn't know how to get out of it himself. And he knows that his own political life depends on still courting that outrageous right wing who are supportive of this kind of behaviour. I mean, it, it, it's um, it's mind-boggling Um to think, you know, that kind of form of right-wing populism. Um, well, it doesn't sound as popular from what you're describing, Jim, in Israel itself, in, in terms of the, the lady that contacted you. I think that's an important point, that there's so many people in Israel that uh, that do not agree with what's going on uh, in, in Gaza. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was thinking also just in terms of the US, you know, we've got the presidential elections coming up and, you know, the bizarre... You know, possibility that Donald Trump is going to be running for president and actually might even get elected. Um, and you know, uh, here in the UK, the Reform Party, um, which again is pushing quite a, a fairly right wing agenda, is 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 chasing at the heels of the Conservative Party. So there does seem to be this kind of sort of surgence of quite right wing extreme political views, which is very intolerant. Of, of people with different views. And just to come back to the observations of Professor Reinhold um, over in Israel, one of the scenarios that he said uh, is possible in the next uh, few months, uh, if there are elections, that there could be a centrist government led by the former Defence Minister Benny Gantz uh, with a broad coalition that would exclude the far right and Netanyahu. Um, and that that would be able, he thought, to find a solution. Because I think one of the things we need to really think about what we're talking about here is we need an immediate humanitarian ceasefire, but we also need to start thinking about how do we rebuild um, Gaza, the West Bank? How do we build rebuild the relationships? Um, because I think if Netanyahu stays in power, the, the, the danger is that he doesn't agree to a two-state solution. Um, just about everybody else does, but he doesn't. He doesn't see any role, I think, for the Palestinian Authority uh, in Gaza. So, I mean, we're at this kind of position where um, 
we have to think about how does this whole situation firstly surely uh, be resolved as a matter of um you know uh, you talked you talked about the moral imperative jim I absolutely agree we need to stop the killing right now but how you know how do we then approach uh, finding that kind of peace and reconciliation down the line uh, that had you know that happened in south africa like w- one of the reasons if i can come in uh, i kind of opened with the analogy to apartheid south africa it was was because of what you've actually just mentioned about us uh, uh policy on this because uh i'm old enough to remember uh apartheid south africa and, and remember its collapse and I also remember uh, Joe Biden uh, as a congressman uh, in the uh, 80s in America, speaking out quite strongly against apartheid and speaking out strongly in support of Mandela. And what uh, I think was one of the catalysts for change in uh, apartheid South Africa was the US Congress turned, you know, it, it turned and it eventually yeah. voted for sanctions against South Africa. And that in turn was a kind of domino effect. And then, you know, the Berlin Wall fell and all these kind of factors. But but ultimately, there was a caucus of uh, political will in America that grew to the extent that uh, it forced the president's hand to reverse policy on South Africa. And once that happened, you know, it was it was, it was was dog days for, for that regime. And I've just read a really interesting book by a, an Australian uh, Jewish journalist called Anthony Lovenstein. It's called The Palestine Laboratory. And he basically, it's a fascinating book in the sense that he uh, explains how Israel over the years, and in particular now with drone technology and spyware technology, exports these uh, technologies all over the world, uh, believe it or not, to, well, the UK, obviously, to America, to to, to some of the Arab, its neighbouring uh, Arab countries. And it's technology that is used to effectively contain uh, what, what it believes to be terrorist threats uh, from, you know, whatever source uh, they, may, they, may, they may come from. I mean, it sells it to Iran, for example, mm. uh, this technology. And that through doing that, it, you know, it courts international support and it, and it receives international support. And that the guinea pig for the operator, the development of all this technology was Palestine. You know, that's where the, the, wow. the, 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 uh, the book's called The Palestine Laboratory. That's where they tested all this technology on the people of Palestine you know, the spyware technology on their phones, etc. And, uh, you know, his argument really is that they court international support through that, through a huge arms uh, export industry as well. And that until that turns, until international uh, opinion turns, then effectively Israel uh, will continue to uh, occupy and will continue to uh, dominate uh, uh, Palestine. And... Uh, he, he also mentions that he feels that uh, support, international support, not just among the Jewish diaspora outside Israel, but uh, in, in the uh, non-Jewish kind of world, uh, is beginning to turn against Israel, mm-hmm. generally speaking. And that, uh, you know, I think from the lessons of apartheid that it will take that type of international kind of uh, pressure, probably by people like you and I and, and, and many, many like us 
to 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 force our politicians to, to change. I think uh, that's the conclusion that he arrives at, and I'd be interested in in, in hearing what 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 either of you think about that. Yeah, it's interesting that you you mentioned the kind of um, using the Palestinians as a kind of laboratory, yeah, and using it to promote and develop that software and so on. That when I came across that that tutu speech and comments over the weekend that there's a, a commentator on social media who was one of his advisors, a Jewish man, um, Nishreen Kufash. And and in his comments at the weekend, I, I was blown away that, that he said that the, the apartheid in Palestine is worse than it was in South Africa, because at least in South Africa, the, the, the black population were needed as a workforce. But that in fact, Netanyahu doesn't need the Palestinians as a workforce, so so they are regarded as disposable. Yeah. They, he wants they the land more than the people. No, no value, it's the land, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course that's defended by a whole kind of misinterpretation religiously, you know, the chosen people in a chosen land or in a promised land to the exclusion of anybody else who lives there. But that that's a whole other kind of theological dimension of the, the, the debate. But it's... Um, I can't agree more that, that there is a turning in the the um, general population and in the general kind of opinion, but that that's also marred by the fact that every time a criticism is aired, then you immediately are attacked as anti-Semitic, yeah. and I find that really disturbing yeah. that um, that you know you cannot criticise without then being accused of of being racist yourself, and it becomes a real frustration. Yeah. There's that great line, isn't there? That that. Uh... Israel's the only the country uh, that uh, occupies another country, but wants sympathy for doing so. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Uh, it, it, and I, it, sorry, only go me. No, I was just going to say the. I think I, both of you have made really insightful uh, observations in relation to the you know what we can draw from the apartheid in South Africa and how it's different. You know, and I, and I particularly think Jim uh, and John, the, the points you made about uh, Israel doesn't need the Palestinian workforce, they want the land is a huge issue in terms of uh I suppose ultimately explaining why Netanyahu um is on a mission to effectively wipe out everybody in, in, in Gaza. And one of the things that really sort of concerns me is what's going to be left in Gaza? Infrastructure. I mean, is there going to be anything left if this continues? Uh, it's just it's just absolutely appalling. And if we, if we think about the position, for example, that the ANC in South Africa were in, I mean, I, you know, I'm old enough to remember uh, in the 80s, Margaret Thatcher, uh, you know, uh, decrying them as a terrorist group, as I recall, uh, and uh, and Nelson Mandela being uh, uh, not treated uh, as he is treated now, you know, as a hero. Um, the Conservatives back then uh, uh, regarded him as the problem, um, and they've tried to reinvent history, I guess. Uh, but yeah. I distinctly remember. I mean, effectively, you know, these are terrorists. No, they're not. The the, the people that are fighting for basic human dignity um i think the difficulty and appreciate your thoughts on this is that clearly the position in gaza um is different and it's also in some respects much more 
intense because it's happening so fast. Uh, it's such a small uh, piece of land, ultimately, relatively speaking. Um, and the level of the bombing and the killing, uh, is, is, as we've all noted, is going on every single day. I mean, we need a solution urgently. Uh, and I, I think my reference to the fact that there might be elections in Israel that could could help, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure that we can wait for that. I'm not sure that there'll be anybody left in, in Gaza if, if we wait for that. And I think, so I'm more persuaded um, in terms of John's analysis, which is what one has to get is a sea change in people's views. Um, that this cannot be acceptable. It's 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 beyond it's beyond the pale. Uh, the more and more people that can influence elected members of that position, and if we can get the the UK government to lobby strenuously, um, and obviously let's assume we have the the UK, the UK at Westminster uh, behind uh, the need for uh, an immediate humanitarian ceasefire, then. Clearly, the UK has got some um, influence in terms of the US, um, but the more, uh, the better. Uh, and I, I don't know what your views are on this, but I genuinely think that if if the United States could be persuaded to take a harder line and to call for a, a humanitarian ceasefire, I think it would happen. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Um, well, I, I, I'm heartened to hear that you know that the the elections in Israel are, are you know fairly imminent, and that that could bring about some change. But I totally agree that, that it's not quick enough. Um, given that every single day there there are people dying, you know, even like Rishi Sunak has now finally said it's too much. Yes. I mean, one death is too much in my book. You know, thirty thousand is is horrendous. Um, but again, I, I need to go back, Mike, to that kind of humanitarian dimension that that given what we saw in Westminster last week and, and the, the farce around that, it would make you despair a wee bit about the political process in general. What we're seeing in the United States, it's, it's like a circus sometimes when you look in on that. Um, do, do we really need to wait till these politicians are converted? Even though, and it may just be the constituency of people that I kind of mix with, but I, I do detect that that, that, that nobody has ever said to me it's a good thing what's happening in Gaza. Everybody, the public opinion is this needs to stop. But that there seems to be a block somewhere, whether it's intellectually or economically or something, but there's a block among those who've got the power and the will to say enough and, and to, to use the power that's at their disposal in Westminster or elsewhere. I mean, Canada and Australia have already come out and changed their views and have been very vocal in condemning the situation. I just can't fathom why the US and ourselves haven't yet. It's interesting, Jim, because in some respects you could say that Westminster um, is almost like a bit of a zombie parliament. And what I mean by that is public opinion has shifted so much. Look at the polls. The Tories' vote has completely collapsed. I mean, yeah. they, they are, <laughs> you know, they're, they're not long for this, uh, for their seats, and I get the impression from what I've read, you know, from 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 uh, scholars in Israel, that that's the same position in Israel. You know, that, that Netanyahu is in the same position as, say, maybe Rishi Sunak, in that 
actually his support amongst the public has collapsed. Mike, um, see, 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 see a change of government, for example. I mean, we, Netanyahu. Uh, what people forget is that his actual domestic policies are extremely right wing mm -hmm. themselves. You know, his internal policies before all of this, and we shouldn't. I don't think we should place too much hope in a, for example, a two state solution or a long term solution. To, to, to the situation there in uh, the reform or the re-election of different uh, 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 political uh, class in Israel. because And the reason I say that is because uh, we probably remember Shimon Peres, who was a kind of left-leaning uh, uh, prime minister in Israel. I think he kind of jumped about party quite a bit, but you know he, he was essentially committed, uh, certainly vocally, to a two-state solution. But under Perez, uh, when he was in power, the illegal settlement uh, of the, the, the Jewish settlers uh, uh, within the occupied territories increased threefold in number. So the uh, illegal settlements of those occupied territories by Jewish settlers actually increased substantially under Perez. And my point is that certainly you know, a change of government there, one would hope, would lead to some kind of short-term, uh, you know, ending of this situation. But a long-term solution to this, I don't think, and it's my humble opinion, but I don't think can be found from internal Israeli politics. And uh, the way you hit politicians, generally speaking, is if they think they're going to lose their seat. You know, yes. that, that's, that's generally speaking uh, how they react. And I think it's going to be interesting in the general election this year how this issue plays out. There's no sign, really, as we've discussed, of it ending anytime soon. And I saw Rachel Reeves last week, for example. She was out canvassing in her constituency, I think it's in Leeds, and she, she ended up having to run into a car to get away from a, a, a Muslim lady who was asking her really kind of pointed questions about dead children in Gaza. And uh, she ended up running away. And I think that is going to play out big time, that type of doorstep and that type of uh, discussion, if you like, or, or engagement uh, in the general election campaign. And I think it might have an impact because let's face it, Labour Party, in my view's position in this is all over the place. I mean, it's just all over the place. Yep. And, uh, you know, and, and, and I, I think certainly uh, probably more so in England, it will lose a lot of votes uh, as a result of it. I think that's right, John, and I think the Scottish Labour Party um, has has now taken a much stronger line in terms of the need for an immediate uh, humanitarian ceasefire. And to be fair, I suspect that has helped influence Keir Starmer to to you know backpedal, you know, because he he previously he was very much kind of not that far away from the sort of Rishi Sunak Tory line, which is that, oh, well, no, Israel's got the right to defend itself, da-da-da-da-da. That, that's now, as you rightly have said, is now not being uh, uh, contended. And it's ridiculous for the reason that you, you, you gave, John, in terms of being completely disproportional uh, and uh, unsustainable. I suppose just sort of coming near the end of our time, um, Jim, I mean... You know, what could you know, thinking about it from the point of view? I mean, you're a, a parish a parish priest uh, up in Maryhill, um, and 
clearly people are very concerned about this. You know, your you, people that are attending um, your church. Uh, what could what do you think people can do? Uh, I'm, I'm trying I'm trying to think of how we can sort of try and get some something positive. You know, to to you know to kind of think about moving forward. Well, I, I mean, I think an, an initial reaction, given my kind of humanitarian concern, is the the people here have been very supportive of um, SCIAF's connection to what they call Caritas. You know, it's an international organisation of, of yeah. local national charity organisations. So our Scottish international aid group are connected to Caritas in Jerusalem. So they've got people on the ground and they've got a direct route to get to get some aid there. Although, of course, one of the people who works for SCIAF is telling me that there is a huge block that they've not experienced in other crisis so when you get the aid out there to Jerusalem mm -hmm. it's about getting it across to Gaza and through the blocks and all that so it's harder than usual so our folk have been responding to that we, we're very fortunate here and I don't know how many other people would have this connection but our our MSP and MP are, are very supportive of the parish and well known to us so we've been able to to make our voice heard to both of them but we're we're one wee parish on the edge of the city you know it, it's it needs to be much more joined up in the, the church context, but I would suspect even nationally and, and indeed the whole of the UK, it, it needs that groundswell to be communicated from every level and just not we pockets that are bothered. I think everybody's bothered, but you know, you need to jump from being bothered to actually stepping up and speaking out. And um anything any of us can do, you this this very moment being together like this is maybe pushing it a wee bit. And then in our own spheres, just to kind of keep plugging away at people, make your voice heard, yeah. bring about that change in the political scene and, and, and get our elected reps to start saying what people feel. Well, I, thanks so much, Jim. Uh, I mean, I, I, I genuinely believe that, you know, the more people that give a voice, um, the better. You know, uh, the more people that call for uh, an immediate humanitarian ceasefire, then there's more chance that we'll persuade those in uh, positions of elected power to to you know to push that very strongly so thanks so much for taking the time to speak to us it's been really insightful yeah thank you thank, no thanks to you both thanks for the invitation yeah it's been refreshing to hear a voice that isn't overtly political and hasn't got that agenda and that uh, also doesn't come from one of the uh, the kind of religious uh, factions that, that let's face it are at the heart of, of, of what is going on over there. Yeah. Uh, so really refreshing and thanks for your time, George. Thank you. Thank you.